You know, for the church of Pergamum, there was a lot of praise that was given to it. A lot of good things were said to it. However, in the midst of that praise, there was one thing that they were doing that was a problem. And there was one error that they were committing that was so big, that was so, that was so problematic, that it was to the point where Jesus said that he is going to bring judgment down upon that church. You see, the church of Pergamum, as many great things as it had done, as it was doing, it was known as the church of compromise. You know, at the beginning of every letter uh, for the churches, uh, Jesus is introduced in a certain way. Uh, to the church of Ephesus, Jesus is introduced as the one who holds the seven stars. And those seven stars represent the seven leaders of the church. And that makes sense because in Ephesus, they had really great leaders there. They were the church that was kind of leading others. And so Jesus was introduced as the, the leader of leaders. Now, in the church of Smyrna, we know that that was a church that was facing a lot of persecution, that people were dying for their faith. And so Jesus was introduced in that letter as the one who died and rose again. It was supposed to be kind of a, an encouragement to say, hey, even though you may die on this earth, you will rise again with me in heaven. Now, to the church of Pergamum, though, what we see is that Jesus is introduced as the one who has a double-edged sword. And you see, this sword, it represents judgment. And it is meant to do one thing, to divide those who are faithful to those who are faithless. This sword is meant to bring judgment down. Jesus is introduced as really a, an encourager, as the Savior, as the Lord to these other churches that we talked about. And yet for this church in particular, there is no word of encouragement from Jesus in the beginning. There's no introduction of him as Lord. He has called down and said, I am coming as a sword to divide you because you are a church that has compromised. You see, when they were founded, this church, I'm sure that they were, uh, that man, people were really into it and then people were saved and there was a revival happening, I'm sure. But after time, what happened is that people began to become comfortable. And those people began to tolerate sin within the church. And what ends up happening, I think you've seen this before too, is that when you first come to know the Lord, you are on fire for him. And so you immediately want to step away from everything that's within the church. You want to focus upon the Lord and you want to stay away from the things that could tempt you that you know are sin. And yet what happens is that time goes on. And little by little, you begin to get comfortable. And little by little, maybe your friends begin to speak to you. Maybe things begin to happen and, and you begin to go one step further, one step further until sin itself doesn't seem that bad anymore. That the things that really you've pushed away, that you said, no, I'm never going to do, begin little by little, you begin to compromise. This is what happened to Pergamum. 
And it says here that because they weren't willing to push sin away, because they were willing to compromise on their values, the church was going to crumble. I believe that many churches today struggle with this same thing. I think it's become easy to compromise our faith and the faith of those in the church when we see what is wrong and we allow it to continue. I think for a lot of us, we may focus upon our own faith, but when it comes to another brother or sister within the church and we see them going in the wrong direction, many of us are unwilling to say what needs to be said. And instead, we allow them to continue on in their sin. And yet this is what happened to to the church of Pergamum. And Jesus says, no, no, this is your responsibility. It is your responsibility to speak life into each other's life. And when you do not, then you are bringing sin into that place and you are allowing it to continue. It is your fault. It's a scary word, church. And it's a scary word because a lot of churches in this generation are dealing with this. Because we are a cancel culture. We are a generation where tolerance is the key word. And so when it comes to dealing with other people's sin, when it comes to saying what's wrong with other people, we are unwilling to say so because we know that it could hurt other people. And yet what Jesus says here, he says, if you do not confront, if you do not change, if you are willing to let sin within your life, I will fight against you. Not against other things. I am willing to fight against you. I am willing to divide those who are faithful to those who are faithless. And so what we're going to look today is at the church of Pergamum. And we're going to go through three things. And it's the same kind of format that every letter goes through with these churches. First, Jesus looks at what they did well. And then second, he looks at what they need to fix. And third, he talks about how they can fix it. So first is is what they did well. Verse 13, it says, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You see, the first thing to notice here is that Jesus says that Pergamum is the place where Satan's throne is. That seems kind of strange, right? But Pergamum, you see, it was a very important religious center of worship. It had temples all over the city dedicated to all of the Greek gods. And and there was this extremely large temple dedicated to the god Zeus. And what the city would do is they would perform these festivals and and they would do all these different things with like snakes and uh, other animals and, and they would give all these sacrifices and songs to these gods. But what's interesting is that scholars and theologians, when they look at this verse, they say that that isn't why Pergamum was considered Satan's throne room. They said that it was because this city in particular was known for their worship towards the Roman emperor. They said that this city in particular was the first city to ever build a temple dedicated to Caesar. 
And so what happened was the people who were in that city no longer saw Caesar as a military leader or a political leader. They saw him as God. And so what Pergamum did is that they set a rule. And that this rule was if you worship Caesar, then you know what? We'll give you freedom to worship other gods as well. But the underlying fact is that you have to send sacrifice, you have to send alms, you have to do these things for Caesar, and then we will give you allowance to be able to worship these other gods. For the most part, everyone's fine with that, except for Christians. Because Christians didn't worship Caesar and other gods. They only worshiped Jesus Christ. And so what ended up happening was that these Christians would get rung up they would begin to lose their citizenship, they would lose their jobs, and they would lose their lives. See, this city, Pergamum, it was a place of great political power. I would say similar to Washington, D.C. And these people, they worshipped their political leader as God. And within this city was the church of Pergamum. And that's where Jesus is addressing his letter. That's where Jesus is giving them praise in the beginning. Because he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Church, I want you to understand one thing. That when Jesus speaks like this, he's not talking just about that one church. That the throne room is there and that it doesn't belong here anymore. I think you need to understand, we need to understand as Christians that there's more happening in this life, that there's more happening in this world than what our eyes can see. That Satan is at work in this place. That his throne room isn't in hell where we can't see, where we only read in books or we only see in movies. Satan's throne room is in this world today. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil. We need to wake up and realize that there is more to this world than we can see. We need to wake up and realize that when people are falling in their faith, that there is more happening than just their laziness, that there is more happening than just coincidence, that demons and the devil exist in this world, and that they are working actively to push other people away from the Lord. That you have to understand that when people invite you to a cult, that things that people kind of ask you to do these things that have a false theology, that those things are from the devil, that they are not things created by man. We have to understand that Satan's throne room is, a, is available and is now here. And I want you to be really clear about that. Because for a lot of us, we think it's far away. And so we run in blindly to these different things when Satan is actively pursuing you. And he is actively attacking you to go away from the Lord. There is more happening in this life than we can see with our eyes. And church, I want you to see that although Pergamum was in a city where Satan's throne was, it says here that this church held fast to his name. Praise the Lord. That in the midst of all of this emperor worship, that in the midst of all that was happening there, Jesus says, I am praising you, I am commending you, because even in the midst of this, you are holding fast to my name. Those words, hold fast, 
they're supposed to bring up this military image where a commander tells his soldiers, I need you to hold fast, that when the enemy comes, I want you to bring down your shield and I want you to hold fast to your ground. I don't want you to move. And it's supposed to represent that when danger comes, that when turmoil comes, that when the winds and the waves come, that you are able to stay secure, you're able to hold fast. No matter how dangerous, no matter how hurt you are, no matter what the situation would be, those soldiers would be able to hold fast. Church, Pergamum held fast to Jesus' name. In the midst of their struggling, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of all of the temptation around them, they were able to hold fast. Even when they were about to lose their citizenship, even when they were about to lose their jobs, even when they were about to lose their jobs, even when they were about to lose their lives, they still held on to him. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, I think many of us are able to persevere in difficult times. Many of us are able to hold fast when things get hard. But I want you to realize here that Jesus is not commending the church for holding fast. That's not what he's praising them for. It's not for the simple fact that they're holding fast. He's commending this church for holding fast to his name. The question is not whether or not you're going to hold fast. That's a given. When hard times come, you will find a way to adapt. You will find a way to hold fast. The question becomes, what are you holding fast to? Because for a lot of us, what we end up doing is we hold fast to things that we should not be holding fast to. That we find security in our money, that we find security in our bank account, that we find security in our identity as a student or as a parent or as a husband or a wife. And when we, find, when we find our security in those things, man, those things are going to crumble. They're meant to crumble. They're not meant to uphold you. They're not meant to last you for that long. Because you're meant to hold on to his name and his name only. Are we holding fast to Jesus? Or are we holding fast to other things? You see, the Bible, it talks about this so often. Your difficulties and the persecutions you are going through are good because they uncover the treasures of your heart. Those things are meant to expose what you truly hold on to. Those things are meant to expose what your motives are so that you are able to repent and turn back to him. They held on fast not to the hopes and the dreams of this world, but to the name and the power of Jesus Christ. In other words, this church was faithful to him. They weren't ashamed of the gospel, but they stood firm in their faith, even if it meant that they would lose their lives. That's a good church. They were doing well there. However, Jesus, he continues on and he explains the problem. He explains the, the thing that they needed to fix. Because verse 14, it starts out with, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. 
In other words, this is what I have against you. You have people in your church that are teaching something wrong and you are allowing it to happen. You're not dealing with it. And you are okay with sin in your life and in the life of others. And I will not allow that. Jesus' warning to this church was not a question of them denying the gospel. They were doing fine in that. It was a question of them being tolerant to sin. It was a question of them not willing to confront what was wrong because they were afraid to do so. In this problem, in this, in this fix that Jesus gives, he, he gives two heresies that the church was dealing with, but we're just going to look at one. In the book of Numbers, there was this false prophet named Balaam. And Balaam was hired by a neighboring king to curse Israel. So Balaam, he, he tries to curse Israel three times, but because he's a false prophet, guess what? Nothing happens, right? And so he's racking his brain, thinking about what, what can I do to really earn my pay and make Israel kind of crumble? What, what can I do? And so what he decides to do is that he says, look, I'm not going to curse them. I'm actually going to corrupt them. And I'm going to try to mix them with other idols, and I'm going to try to do that. And so what he does is he uh, gets all of these Moabite women, these uh, women from other nations, and he brings them into the nation of Israel, and he has them seduce the Israelite men. And so what ends up happening is that it works. The Israelite men are seduced. They end up marrying these Moabite women. And what ends up happening is that they begin to worship the other idols in these other nations. And as they begin to come more and more into the world and become more and more involved in these other nations, they begin to lose focus of God. They begin to think less of God. And therefore, the nation of Israel begins to crumble. And guess what? Israel begins to disappear. The theology of Balaam was that Christians can marry with non-Christians and still be fine. It was a theology that taught that Christians don't have to be separate from the world. But in fact, they're allowed to be completely intertwined with the world and that everything is going to be okay, that you're allowed to indulge in whatever you want to indulge in and do whatever you want to do in because at the end of the day, you're still going to go to heaven. That was the theology of Balaam that was being taught within that church. And Jesus is straight up saying, no, do not believe that. Do not trust that. That needs to stay away from this church. You see, 2 Corinthians 6.14 6, says, For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Look, church, we cannot be Christians and be content with worshiping idols. We cannot be Christians and be okay with partaking in everything in this world. We are set apart for a reason. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. That when you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, your identity is no longer found in the identity that everyone else has. 
Of course, people here are going to indulge in everything here because this is the only life that they think they have. But us as Christians, we realize something more. We realize that this life is temporary here. We realize that we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. So we have to live that way. Don't be fooled into thinking otherwise. And that's why so many people get confused. Because their perspective is not eternal, it's temporary. Their perspective is saying, look, I'm going to look at this world, I'm going to look through my experiences, and I'm going to interpret the Bible that way. No. It has to be the opposite. Because you're a citizen, a citizen of heaven, because you have eternal life, because you have the gift of God, you know that you have to look at the perspective of the Bible and look at that through the world. Or look at the Bible and see the Bible and interpret that and then look at the world. We may be in this world, but we are not of this world. We are not meant to partake in the same things as our non-Christian friends. And we are meant to strive for holiness. If we are in sin, we are meant to turn away from it. If our brother or sister is in sin, we are meant to tell them before it's too late. Look, the problem here was not necessarily that there was just a false teacher teaching uh, a false theology. Yes, that was wrong, but, but what was truly wrong here was that there were people who were falling into sin, people who were being taught a wrong theology, and the leaders and the other members of the church were not doing anything about it. That's where the wrong part is. That's what Jesus is upset about. That's where he's saying, look, you need to wake up. We are called to be accountable to one another. We are called to talk life into each other's life. And so when we're falling into sin, yes, it is your responsibility to go before the Lord and to repent. But it's also our brothers and sisters' responsibility to talk into our life as well. You see, church, this is the point here. This church was holding on to the name of Jesus, which is a great thing. They were strong in their faith towards him. They were strong even when there was persecution. However, the problem was that they were soft in their dealing with sin. They were unwilling to step away from the sins of the world, and they were unwilling to speak up when someone was falling into sin. And because of that, Jesus says that he would bring judgment. That's an important word. That's a scary word. Because if you look at it for all intents and purposes, it seems like their personal faith was doing pretty well. It seems like they understood the gospel. It seems like they knew what the, church, what they, what the truth was. However, a little bit of sin that enters into the church and is not exposed, is not talked about, but is just covered Jesus is saying, look, because of that one thing, I am going to bring judgment to this church. I hope that's a wake-up call to each of us. It is important to have a personal relationship with the Lord. 
it is important to grow in your own faith. And yet, don't mistake, and don't mistake that your one sin is something that can be covered over. Don't think that one sin that the other person that you see can just be ignored. No, no, no. Jesus is asking us, is telling us, is commanding us, saying, look, you need to confront it. You need to nip it in the bud. You need to change it, or I'm going to bring judgment to this church. Now, if this is you, Jesus gives us a command. And the command is, is very simple. Verse 16 says, if this is you, then repent. Compromise is a sin. You not speaking up is a sin. You not changing your ways is a sin. Look at the language Jesus uses. He doesn't say, look, you're, you're, you're being too loving. You know, you're, you're just not, you're, I know that's not your personality, so you don't have to say anything, but just try to speak up a little bit more. He doesn't say that. He says, repent. You who are in sin, repent. You who have not confronted the other person, repent. Because what you're doing is wrong. One thing we have to realize is that our God is a holy God. And our church must strive to be a holy church. Not one that thinks it's somehow better than the world, but one that understands God's word and is unwilling to tolerate evil. I need you to understand that the church isn't designed for believers to come and say whatever they want and just be completely accepted. That's not what churches are supposed to do. That's what Pergamum was doing, and that's why Jesus says, I'm going to divide you. The church is meant to be a place where Christians uphold the truth and unbelievers hear this truth and they're saved. That's what the church is. There is a standard of truth that is being set forward. And we uphold that truth no matter what. And we follow it with our lives. And as unbelievers enter into the church, as they hear the gospel, it's not meant that the truth is supposed to change to their lives. It's that their lives are supposed to change to the truth. And as their lives change to the truth, that's when they understand their sin and the grace of God and they become saved. That's what the church is for. That's what the church is meant to be. Unbelievers are not meant to feel secure in the church. Yes, we want to reach out in love and we want non-Christians to experience the goodness of God, yes. But there should never be a false security that they belong in Christ. If they do, then we are leading them towards hell. They have to understand what is right and what is wrong. They have to understand that Jesus Christ is the one and only way. Our goal has to always be to love in a way that exposes sin and brings them to repentance before God. And the only way we can do that is if we call out sin for what it is. You see, remember, uh, here at the end, um, Jesus, he gives a promise. After everything he's, he talks about here, he, he speaks a bit more intimately to the church. 
And he says that, look, for you who endure, for you who stay faithful, for you who live a lifestyle or strive to live a lifestyle that does not compromise, I will give you a white stone with a new name. I will give you manna from heaven. You see, a white stone back then was given to the victor, to the champion of the Greek and the Roman games. It was a trophy that allowed them to enter into other festivals. It allowed them to enter into different uh, buildings and different rooms that normal people would not be able to go into. And what he's saying here is that this white stone is eternal life with him. That white stone is salvation. It's security and it's identity that is found in his family. You know, one of the richest families in the world are the Waltons. They founded Walmart. And if you're born into that family, man, you have every privilege that money can offer you, right? You have every resource at the tip of your fingertips, right? You have everything to you. One of the most influential families in the world are the Kennedys. So many of them are in politics, and if you're born into that family, then you have so much privilege. You have so much access. But in this passage, Jesus is telling us that we have even a greater name. And that new name is to be under his family. You see, your name is no longer defined for how good of a person you are, is no longer defined as as how good of a student you are or, or how good of a parent you are. Your name is under the work that has already been completed in Jesus Christ. That when you are saved under him, that you are his son, that you are God's child, and that when God looks at you, he looks at you through the lens of Jesus Christ as perfect. You are his son and you are his daughter. That is your identity now. That is your new name. Church, we do not want to be one, a church that compromises. We want to be a church where our faith is real and where we hold on to his name. We want to deal with error and with sin, with truth and love, but we have to deal with it. We want to be a true church that strives to be holy. If you do not know Christ today, may I pray that today would be the day you turn to him. And for those who are within his kingdom, for those who are within the church, I pray that you would look upon your heart, that you would decipher what's happening and that you would point out sin, and that you would repent and turn to him. Amen? Let's pray.